0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu.
1: This is Fresh Air. I'm Dave Davies. The popular British duo Everything But The Girl has released their first new album in 24 years. Today we feature our interview with Tracy Thorne, who's won half of the duo with her husband Ben Watt. They formed their act in the 1980s when they were dating and became pop stars in the 90s, especially in Britain, for their smart, slinky dance pop. Before we listen to Terry's 2018 interview with Tracy Thorne, let's go to our critic Ken Tucker for a review of their new album, Fuse. He says the duo's return puts them back in the center of current music making.
2: Time and again she says something like maybe she's leaving but she-
3: The low, smoky voice of Tracy Thorne is the signature sound of Everything But The Girl, with the duo's other half, Ben Watt, producing the beats. Describing their roles that way diminishes some aspects of collaboration, of course, but it's a useful shorthand for the way a listener experiences any new Everything But The Girl song. Thorn's voice draws you in, and Watt surrounds her with an atmosphere that works as either an enhancement or a dramatic contrast to what Thorn is singing about. Take, for example, Nothing Left to Lose, whose jittery beat and swooping keyboards get your head bobbing, only to be brought up short by Thorn's declaration of pain, of needing a thicker skin to endure the agony of a romance that's become one-sided.
2: I need a thicker skin
3: This collection, Fuse, eventually reveals itself as an album-length plea for compassion and connection. Sometimes it's about one person hoping to break through another person's defenses to achieve closeness, and sometimes it addresses broader symptoms of modern alienation. On the song called When You Mess Up, Thorne urges the person she's talking to to forgive minor sins and not blow them up into relationship or career-ending dramas which is to say, we all mess up.
2: And You seem so young again Oh, but it's hard to explain Don't be so hard on yourself Don't think you're inappropriate And don't just discard your old self You're never inappropriate In a world of microaggressions Little human transgressions Forgive yourself Forgive yourself To sing is to pray twice And I hate people who give me advice you
3: You might have noticed the way Ben Watt, as producer, distorted Thorne's voice here and there in that song. It's a new strategy for the duo, one that gives some of this material a novel gloss. My favorite song on this album is in some ways its most stark and bleak, On Lost, Thorne lists various things she says she's lost this week, with the losses increasing in emotional importance as she goes on.
2: I lost my mind last week I lost my place I lost my bags I lost my biggest client. I lost my perfect job I lost the plot Then I just lost it I just lost it I just lost it My faith and my best friend, I lost my mother. I lost my mother. I lost my mother.
3: If you like this new Everything But The Girl music, I also recommend Thorn's solo work. I made her 2018 album record my number one that year, and she's also a terrific prose writer. Her 2013 memoir, Bedsit Disco Queen, How I Grew Up and Tried to Be a Pop Star, is wonderful. The new music on Fuse continues Thorne and Watts' tough-minded yet good-hearted take on the world at a time when it's never been more welcome.
1: Ken Tucker reviewed the new album Fuse by the duo Everything But The Girl, their first album in 24 years. We're going to listen now to Terry's interview with Tracy Thorne, who's won half of the band with her husband, Ben Watt. They quit performing as a band in 2000. She left it behind to raise their three children. Thorne began a solo career in 2007, releasing four albums and a movie soundtrack. She's had a long-running column for The New Statesman, in which she writes about many of the artists she loves— from Chrissy Hine, David Bowie, and Mavis Staples, to Stephen Sondheim and Betty Davis. She's now taking a hiatus from the column, and she's authored several books, including the memoir Bedsit Disco Queen, and a book about singing called Naked at the Albert Hall. Terry spoke to Tracy Thorne in 2018 when she just released her solo album titled Record.
4: Now, you wrote that when you became a mother, you felt that you couldn't be the person you were on stage and the mother you were at home, that somehow those two sides of you seemed incompatible. What were those two different versions of you and why did they seem incompatible?
5: Well, I mean, you know, I see other women who are perfectly capable of doing that. So, again, I'd stress when I wrote this, I I don't want to make this into a sort of general point. Um, But I found it really tricky, especially having the girls with us on tour. Um And even you know having someone else around who was helping inevitably, the kids wanted me during the day, so I spent a lot of the day you know doing mum things, taking them out to the nearby park, trying to sort out their meals, and then at the end of the day, putting them to bed and getting back to the venue, being in a dressing room, putting makeup on getting on stage um and At that point, I suddenly felt that at that stage you're required to turn back into this narcissistic pop star. Um, That's the sort of essence of the job, really. When all day you've been being the self-sacrificing one. And that's quite a psychological split.
4: Does being on stage require being narcissistic?
5: Well, it requires that sort of projection, that complete absorption in what you're doing at that moment. I do think there's a degree of narcissism about that. Yeah, there's a look at me element to it, isn't there? Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, for the rest of the day, even even during those hours when I was on stage, it was difficult for me, I think, to have that complete disconnect from thinking, okay, what's happening back at the hotel? You know, I wasn't such a good performer because I was just distracted.
4: So you've also dealt with stage fright. And I was wondering if it was a fear when you were on the stage or just a dread of being on stage, like a pre-performance dread. Yeah, my stage fright happens much
5: more pre the event. I often used to find that at the moment of actually walking out on stage, a sort of calm would descend on me. And especially when I was very warmed up and we were on tour and doing it a lot, you know, I'd I'd get into that routine of it and be able to do it just in the in the way that you can do things that you're doing repeatedly. The thing I found hardest was always the anticipation, you know, the, the hours building up to it, thinking about it, getting back into that zone.
4: Um, what about being in the studio?
5: See, there I, I don't suffer any anxiety at all, um, which is why I've gone back to recording. You know, I find that just such a liberating kind of space, that feeling that you can try anything and then you can try something else and then you can try something else. And you only share it with people once you've reached the point where, you know, you're happy with it. Um, I find that really relaxing. I know there's other people who are the opposite, you know, people who, singers, who get that stage fright as soon as they're in front of the microphone that's actually recording them and, you know, do endless takes going round and round and round. You know, I'm just absolutely not like that. I can literally clap my headphones on and and go. And most of my vocals are done in one or two takes and I just have
4: that sense of freedom in the studio. So I want to play another track from your new album record. And Mm. this is the song Babies. And I think it's the first song I know... That's about using birth control and the fear of getting pregnant when you don't want to have a baby and then the urgency of having a baby when you do want to have one. How did you come up with that idea as the premise for a song?
5: I was on a walk one day and the opening lines of the song just appeared in my head with that tune. Every morning of the month, you push a little tablet through the foil. Cleverest of all inventions, better than a condom or a coil. And it made me laugh out loud as I thought of it. I thought, that's great, that's an opening line. And I stopped and made a note of it on my phone. Um, And then when I got home, I started trying to turn it into a song. And, you know, it it is funny. It's meant to be humorous as well, but it contains um a lot of urgency, I think, in terms of feeling, you know, the, the desperation you feel when you're young, the terror of getting pregnant when you don't want to. And then again, the urgency later on when perhaps you do want to. And that's an equally strong feeling. Um, and I, I also just thought there was something funny about me. You know, I'm supposed to have this kind of sophisticated, beautiful voice. This is how people talk about me. And I thought it would be quite funny for me to be singing about condoms and coils. And babies, babies. And babies, babies, babies.
4: (laughs) Okay, so let's hear babies. And this is from Tracy Thorne's new album, Record. Tracy Thorne from her new album, Record, the song is called Babies. So, you know, the, part of this song is about the anxiety that can surround sex when you're wo- a woman worried about getting pregnant. And then having to take hormones or putting foreign objects in your body to prevent pregnancy. I think men don't always comprehend what that means.
5: No, I think that's true. And, and obviously for girls, it starts pretty young, Um I, I can just remember those teenage years of long, long before the internet. So having access to almost no information about my body and no real understanding of how this thing worked. Um, so, you know, this sometimes ridiculous, unnecessary terror that you'd done something that was going to get you pregnant. And actually you hadn't. But it was typical at the time that girls used to write to the Kathy and Claire page saying things like, I've sat on a toilet seat. Am I going to be pregnant? You know, a boy has put his hand down my trousers, am I going to be pregnant? Um, and I, it just reminded me how, how ignorant we were
4: and how, how we had to just try and manage without knowing anything. So I want to play another song from record. And this song is called Guitar. And it's a song about having a crush on a boy and thinking he was really cool because he played guitar. But he was cruel, you say, in the song. And that you realize at some point that he was just the catalyst because you had your guitar You had a guitar, and you could sing, and you could play. And um, it reminds me of something Joyce Johnson once wrote. Jack Kerouac had been her boyfriend. Mm. And in a memoir about that period of her life, she wrote that guys had adventures, and girls like her fell in love with the guys who had the adventures, and the girls' adventure was falling in love with the guy who had the adventure, as opposed Mm. to the girls having an adventure of their own being in love with the guy who was the adventure. Yeah. This song made me think about that.
5: <laughs> I remember reading that book. Oh, really? <laughs> Minor
4: Characters. Minor Characters, yes. Did yeah. you love that book?
5: I loved it, and it rang lots of bells with me. Um, yeah, you know, I've, I've resented that idea for a very long time, the notion that, you know, the biggest adventure you're going to have is falling in love with a boy who is having adventures and you know the song guitar is is me looking back and realizing that there was a period of my life when I did buy into that but not for very long (laughs) only maybe for a year or so I think in my teens Um, and it was when I first started getting into music and you know a lot of the other boys I knew especially had formed bands and I watched them do that and it looked exciting and my first instinct was you know these boys are really attractive they're doing exciting things Um, and then I bought my own guitar. And I thought, well, hang on, I can do this as well. You know, it looks like they're having a load of fun. I I don't just want to actually watch them have that fun. I want to have that fun as well. So the first band I joined, I was the only girl. And I remember immediately feeling a little bit like I'd got kind of secret access into this boys gang, you know. And after rehearsals, we'd go off to gigs together. And it was brilliant. I I loved that feeling. Um, And... So around that time, you know, there were a couple of boys in bands who, whilst I maybe thought for a brief moment, you know, that they were the ones doing the exciting thing. Actually, what I was also doing at the same time, once I'd picked up a few chords on the guitar, was I was starting to write. And I think what the song Guitar is about is that moment in my life when playing a guitar, realising I could sing, just was the beginning of everything for me. You know, everything that followed um, came from that moment. Um, It was the moment that opened up my ability to communicate and, you know, and make art. And, you know, that's become my, so much of my life.
4: Well, I really like this song. So let's hear a guitar written and performed by my guest, Tracy Thorne from her new album record. Tracy Thorne from her new album, Record. Um, So you've described that once you started playing in a band with boys, you felt like you'd gotten the secret access to this kind of boy gang. (laughs) Mm. But then you you, you formed a group with other other girls. Yeah. How was it different?
5: Well, I I think I realized pretty quickly that the access to the boys gang was always going to be slightly limited. um, And... There were times when I began to think, OK, they're sort of implying that they you know, know more about this stuff than I do. But when I came to think about getting another band together, my next thought was, OK, I think maybe this time I'll do it with other girls. Let's see if that works differently. So I formed a band with some girls at school called the Marine Girls. And yeah, it was different. I, I think we felt quite a defiant sense of proving that we could do this, that we didn't need boys to show us how to do it. We broke lots of the rules of what a band was supposed to be doing because we didn't really know what those rules were and we were not very respectful of them. So, you know, we never had a drummer because we didn't know anyone who had a drum kit. And I think we just had this attitude of, well, who says you need a drummer? (laughs) And so there was a real sort of combination of naivety and innocence about it, but also a
1: defiant spirit. Singer Tracy Thorne speaking with Terry Gross in 2018. Thorne is half the duo Everything But The Girl with her husband Ben Watt. They've just released their first album in 24 years titled Fuse. We'll hear more of Terry's interview with Tracy Thorne after this short break. This is Fresh Air. This message
0: comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history from Onyx Collective and Hulu. What does it mean to be black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as black experiences, you'll hear. It means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcast.
1: Let's get back to Terry's interview with British singer, songwriter, and guitarist Tracy Thorne. For 17 years, beginning in 1980, she was half of the duo Everything But The Girl with Ben Watt, her husband with whom she has three children. She gave up performing to raise them. Eventually, she began a solo career, releasing four albums. And now the duo has their first new album in 24 years, titled Fuse. When Terry spoke with her in 2018, she'd released her solo album titled Record. Record. When we left off, they were talking about the bands she was in before everything but the girl, including an all-girl band called Marine Girls.
4: So after being in a band with guys and then forming a band with other girls, you ended up going to college. And at college, you soon fell in love with Ben Watt, who became your music partner and your life partner. You've had children together. You've been together since what year? Uh, 1981. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so you you together you formed the band Everything But the Girl. Um. And you write that this was the time when you discovered feminism and made it made you question was it the right decision to be in a band with your boyfriend? Was it even mm. cool to have a boyfriend? Was monogamy inevitably awful and oppressive? And should you really try to be a lesbian? <laughs> So, Some of the questions you were asking yourself at the time, how did you work through those questions?
5: In the way you do when you're young, which is you just kind of live your life. And, you know, the the questions sort of answer themselves on a day-to-day basis. Um, You know, I think if if I was going to be giving advice to, for instance, one of my daughters now who was doing what I did, uh, you know, moving in with a boy who she'd met on the first day at university, forming a band with him, you know, throwing everything in hook, line and sinker with this person. I'd say, that's really risky. Don't do that. Uh, Or at least if you do, keep lots of other options open. You know, don't shut any doors. But, you know, I was reckless in the way that young people are reckless. And I was in love and I just thought, what could possibly go wrong? So while I was asking myself these theoretical questions... um, on the other hand, I was just carrying on living my life in the way you do when you're young. You know, you just crack on with
4: things. So some of the questions you asked yourself about having your boyfriend, now husband, um, be in the same band with you was, would the relationship take precedence over work? What if you had a fight? Uh, what, if they being a, what if you stopped being a couple? Would there still be a band? Um, did you have to confront any of those questions? Not seriously. uh, But
5: I do think one of the um, reasons that when we stopped in 2000, one of the reasons we haven't gone back to it is because I think we both have looked at each other and said, do you know what? We did quite well there. We got away with it that many years and it might be pushing our luck to try any longer, Mm -hmm. especially now we've got kids. You know, our relationship now is even more complicated. It just feels like too much. and you know now we're doing we're working separately and that seems to me to work very well now.
4: One of the things that you did have to confront when you were with Ben and everything but the girl is that he got this rare autoimmune disease whose name I can't pronounce. Yeah, Churg-Strauss syndrome. Thank you. Um <laughs> and it apparently causes vascular inflammation and a lot of his small intestine had to be removed you weren't sure he would survive. I mean, he was literally deathly ill. Um, What kind of scenarios did you play in your mind when his life was in jeopardy? Um, You know, the moments
5: when his life was in jeopardy, again, it's that sense of um, you're just completely wrapped up in the moment. I don't think during those... And it was weeks in hospital when, you know, things kept going from bad to worse and then things got a little bit better and then things got worse again. So that that feeling of, you know, is he going to survive or not, that, that was quite long drawn out. Um, so I, I just remember getting very immersed in the day-to-day of that. I don't remember thinking ahead and thinking, you know... What's this going to mean for the long term, for the future? Um, it's it, it it sort of narrowed. I remember my focus just narrowing and sometimes just narrowing to what's going to happen in the next hour. You know, when you're sitting by someone's bed and watching those flickering numbers on a screen beside their bed or watching, you know, some little drop of fluid coming down from a bag into someone's arm, you you just get lost in this tiny little present moment, you know, wondering what's going to happen in the next hour.
4: How do you think that, that experience changed your relationship? Uh,
5: it's very hard to say, I suppose, because I, I find it hard to imagine our relationship without that thing having happened. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I can almost think of a before and after. Um, you know, they were the people we were before and then inevitably certainly in the short term in the immediate after we were different people for a while you know he was he was very sick for quite a long time and that meant quite a long convalescence which meant um physical recovery and also psychological recovery. And I do think he was someone who for a while was suffering from what would probably be called post-traumatic stress. And he became very introverted and I think was just dealing with a lot of it inside his head. So that was tricky. You know, that had to be negotiated in the relationship. Then we got back to work and um, became very focused. And in some way, I've written about this as well, you know, the experience was very inspirational. It, It got both of us into a sort of work mode that was very impassioned and fired up. And I think we made very good work in the aftermath of it and then became very
4: successful. Is Amplified Heart the album that you made after he, after he um, recovered?
5: It is, and I think that's the one that's got the songs on it that are you know, most obviously about um, people dealing with that kind of stuff. I think you can tell the people who wrote that record you know, have had some kind of experience.
4: Yeah, well, I want to play one of those songs. This is We Walk the Same Line, which I think really is a song pledging to always be there for him or pledging always to be there for each other. If you lose your faith, you can have mine. Do you want to say anything about the song?
5: Yeah, I mean, it is, I think, about that um, bond we had afterwards. You know, so you asked how things changed and, you know, it was a mixture of, in some ways, feeling separate from each other because we had actually been through quite different experiences. You know, for a long time, he was unconscious and, and I was having conversations with doctors. So on one level, we'd experienced different things. But there was also that shared feeling of just, we've been through a trauma. And that was a, that was very bonding. And I, I think it made both of us feel in the aftermath of that, you know, well, having been through this together, it you know, it does feel like a kind of glue Um, And there's something about that that um,
4: does make you feel, you know, very, very committed to someone. So let's hear We Walk the Same Line from the Everything But The Girl album, Amplified Heart.
2: If you lose your faith, babe, you can have mine. And if you're lost, I'm right behind. Because we walk the same line. Ah I-
1: Tracy Thorne's song, We Walk the Same Line, from the album Amplified Heart by Everything But the Girl. She spoke with Terry Gross in 2018. We'll hear more of their conversation after a break. This is Fresh Air.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Discover. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.
4: Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts.
1: We're listening to the interview Terry recorded with singer Tracy Thorne in 2018. She just released her solo album titled Record. Thorne is half the duo Everything But The Girl with her husband, Ben Watt. They've just released their first album in 24 years, titled Fuse.
4: So I, I love your deep voice. And you've said that you didn't initially think of yourself as a singer. But when you did start singing, that you wanted to sing like Patti Smith or Susie Sue from Susie and the Banshees. But you started singing that way on stage and then just kind of lost, lost your voice. So what did you do instead? I think for a while
5: then I I had to try and work out a way of coming up with a voice that was my own, that that I could, you know, have some control over. That took me quite a while. I think for a long time I was a much better studio singer than I was live singer, because, again, I, I could sort of sing as quietly as I needed to. And often what people say about my voice is, you know, it's very intimate, it's very direct, sounds like I'm singing... Right into your ear, and that's because a lot of the studio singing I did, especially in the early days, is sung like that. it's very whispered into the microphone kind of singing. What I then had to learn was how to convey the songs on stage, where inevitably you have to project a bit more um, you know I had to build up a bit more strength and stamina uh, so I, I tried having some singing lessons for a while i I learned how to do breathing exercises um, you know, and I just had to gradually build up a voice that was my own and, you know, which could serve the functions it needed to.
4: You know, you've written that your voice got deeper because of menopause. And I think it's great that you wrote about that because I think a lot of women are uncomfortable acknowledging the existence of menopause. It's personal and it's also a sign of age. Mm. Yes. No,
5: I I think that's right. And especially in music, obviously, which, you know, there's still a lot of pressure to um, you know, maintain an image of youthfulness. So as soon as you and se- bring the word and menopausal sexiness. in, and sexiness, and so as soon as you bring the word menopausal into the room, I think a lot of younger men especially might run screaming. Um, and so that's a,
4: that's a risk I'm prepared to take. You wrote a column in the New Statesman about your reaction to younger feminists and how at first you were troubled about how the generation who came after you in the 1990s You found them discombobulating and that, you know, in your feminist literature class um, when you were young, you'd all thrown the story of O across the room. But this new Mm. third wave of feminists seemed to be okay with strip clubs and porn. Describe what was disturbing you at the time when you were thinking that.
5: So that was in the 90s. So I was sort of getting into my 30s at that stage um, and. I was very aware that there was a younger generation. Um, There was also, I don't know whether this was true in America, but in the UK there was the emergence of what we call this new lad culture. So there were new magazines started, which, you know, largely written by and for men, um, which seemed to, in a slightly ironic, they would claim, (laughs) a slightly ironic way, went back to what seemed to me to be obviously sexist tropes of, you know, girls in bikinis on the front cover lads talking in a very laddish way about girls. Um, And there was a generation of of women who, perhaps because they were part of that same generation, seemed to absorb some of those kinds of um, attitudes towards things like sex and porn and, you know, styles of behaviour. And again, it made me suddenly feel, wow, I'm out of step with the times. You know, it made me feel like I'd been, the, the feminism I'd grown up with, was very sort of puritanical you know I, I just began to question and think well hang on how do we how do we reconcile these separate things which seem to be saying quite different things about what your approach should be and it took me a while and then you know then obviously in another period of time passes and you know even that that wave of feminism from the 90s gets swept away and you get a whole new wave again um, and I so I look at the you know generation who are younger now and They seem, again, to have a a different set of priorities, perhaps a slightly different set of values, you know. But somehow we need to all work out, you know, what are the shared common values and, um, you know, work on what we have in common, I think, and not, not obsess too much about, you know, slight differences.
4: So I want to play another song from your new album. This is called Smoke. It's a it's a kind of political song. It's a song about your love of England, about your parents and grandparents growing up in England, and you say, "London, you're in my blood, but I feel you going wrong." So, is this is this a song about Brexit? Uh, maybe partly, but it's also just what's
5: happening to um, lots of cities. You know, the same thing's happening to London as is happening to New York. You know, that hollowing out of a city. I talk in the song about the fact that I, my family had lived in London for a couple of hundred years before I was born. And then my parents' generation moved out to the suburbs after the war, because um, London was largely a bomb site, And so I grew up in the suburbs, but I grew up desperate to get back to London. And London, for me, represented everything that a big city represents, you know, freedom diversity a place where people are creative and live cheap by jowl and it's exciting and all that stuff and that was why I was desperate to get back to London and that's my worry about the way in which it's changing now you know if it becomes a place that's only inhabitable by the super rich um, then all that is lost and um, you know I think that's very worrying and, and it's true of other cities obviously but um, for me, you know, I, I have very emotional feelings about London. So
4: that's what made me write that. In the song, you talk a little bit about your mother experiencing the Blitz in London during World War Two, and how a friend of a friend was blown to bits. Did you grow up with a lot of war stories?
5: I did, but in the way that I was never really made to take them that seriously, I don't know whether it was a generational thing or a thing about being British. Um, but both both my parents had been in London during the Blitz and they both told stories to us as though it was something out of a a kind of, you know, a war film that was semi-comic. Um, so my, you know, my dad had a story about being blown out of bed, literally being blown out of bed. Um, but he made it comic, you know, he implied, oh, and there was me and my brother and the f- next thing we knew we found ourselves on the floor. Um, so I grew up with the stories told in that tone of voice, and it really wasn't until I got quite a lot older, you know, perhaps old enough to start empathizing with my parents as people who had a past and who'd you know been young once and you know beginning to wonder what their experiences were actually like, and then I began to think. Okay. My parents did actually have the experience of being in their bed and, you know, a bomb being dropped near enough to be blown out of your bed. So that makes me look at it in a different light now.
4: Right. Well, let's hear the song Smoke from Tracy Thorne's new album record. Tracy Thorne, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you.
2: In good time, they had a son called James Who had a son called James My mother now was a teenage girl She survived the blitz She survived the blitz Though she knew
1: That's Tracy Thorne. She spoke with Terry Gross in 2018. Thorne is half the duo Everything But The Girl with her husband, Ben Watt. They've just released their first album in 24 years, titled Fuse. Coming up, Justin Chang reviews the new film BlackBerry about the success and failures of the first smartphone. This is Fresh Air.
0: Support for NPR and the following message come from PBS. PBS invites you on a trip to the future. A Brief History of the Future is a groundbreaking series filled with hope and possibility about where people are today and what could come next. From tech to tradition, from climate to culture, from science to spirituality, join futurist Ari Wallach on a journey around the world as he meets the brilliant minds and brave pioneers remaking people's futures for generations to come. A Brief History of the Future. Stream now on PBS and the PBS app.
4: This episode's sponsor is PwC, which offers the following message. A robot may not be coming for your job, but competitors are coming for your market share. PwC pairs the right tech with the right solutions to help you gain a competitive edge. Reimagine operations from the cloud, fuel innovation with responsible AI, and detect risks before they become headlines. Human-led and tech-powered, it's all part of the new equation from PwC.
3: Support
4: for this podcast comes from the Neubauer Family Foundation, supporting WHYY's Fresh Air and its commitment to sharing ideas and encouraging meaningful conversation.
1: The new movie BlackBerry recounts the dramatic rise and fall of the Canadian tech company that led the smartphone revolution in the late 90s and early 2000s before the iPhone came along. It was directed and co-written by Matt Johnson, who plays one of the company's three co-heads, along with Jay Baruchel and Glenn Howerton. The movie opens in theaters this week. Our film critic Justin Chang has this review.
6: Like a lot of people, I'm a longtime iPhone user, and I'm in fact using one to record this very review. But I still have a lingering fondness for my very first smartphone, a BlackBerry, which I was given for work back in 2006. I loved its squat round shape, its built-in keyboard, and even its arthritis-inflaming scroll wheel. Of course, the BlackBerry is now no more, and the story of how it became the hottest personal handheld device on the market, only to get crushed by the iPhone, is told in smartly entertaining fashion in a new movie simply titled BlackBerry. Briskly adapted from Jackie McNish's book, Losing the Signal, the untold story behind the extraordinary rise and spectacular fall of BlackBerry, This is the latest of a few recent movies, including Tetris and Air, that show us the origins of game-changing new products. But unlike those earlier movies, BlackBerry is as much about failure as it is about success, which makes it perhaps the most interesting one of the bunch. It begins in 1996, when Research in Motion is just a small, scrappy company hawking modems in Waterloo, Ontario, Jay Baruchel plays Mike Lazaridis, a mild-mannered tech whiz who's the brains of the operation. His partner is a headband-wearing, teenage mutant Ninja Turtles-loving goofball named Douglas Fregan, played by Matt Johnson, who also co-wrote and directed the movie. His script returns us to an era of VHS tapes and dial-up internet, when the mere idea of a phone that could handle emails, let alone games, music, and other applications, was unimaginable. That's exactly the kind of product that Mike and Doug struggle to pitch to a potential investor in this scene. So,
0: basically, there is a free wireless internet signal all across North America and nobody has figured out how to use it. There's free internet in this room right now. Mm -hmm. It's like the force... Sorry, have you seen Star Wars? No. So, okay, picture a pager, a cell phone, and an email machine all in one thing. And we call it, um, Pocket Link.
6: The investor that Mike and Doug are courting is a sleazy piece of work named Jim Balsillie, Played by a raging Glenn Howerton from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Jim knows very little about tech, but senses that the research and motion guys might be onto something, and he joins their ragtag operation and tries to whip their slackerish employees into shape. And so, after a crucial deal with Bell Atlantic, later to be known as Verizon, the BlackBerry is born. And it becomes such a hit, so addictive among users that people start calling it the Crackberry. The time frame shifts to the early 2000s, with research in motion now based in a slick new office, with a private jet at its disposal. But the mix of personalities is as volatile as ever. Sometimes they gel, but more often they clash. Mike, as sweetly played by Baruchel, is now co-CEO, and he's still the shy yet stubborn perfectionist, forever tinkering with new improvements to the BlackBerry and refusing to outsource the company's manufacturing operations to China. Jim, also co-CEO, is the Machiavellian dealmaker who pulls one outrageous stunt after another, whether he's poaching top designers from places like Google or trying to buy a National Hockey League team and move it to Ontario. That leaves Doug on the outside looking in, trying to boost staff morale with Raiders of the Lost Ark movie nights and maintain the geeky good vibes of the company he started years earlier. As a director, Johnson captures all this in-house tension with an energetic handheld camera and a jagged editing style. He also makes heavy use of a pulsing synth score that's ideally suited to a tech industry continually in flux. The movie doesn't entirely sustain that tension, or sense of surprise to the finish. Even if you don't know exactly how it all went down in real life, it's not hard to see where things are headed. Jim's creative accounting lands the company in hot water right around the time Apple is prepping the 2007 launch of its much-anticipated iPhone. That marks the beginning of the end, and it's fascinating to watch as BlackBerry goes into its downward spiral. It's a stinging reminder that success and failure often go together, hand in thumb-scrolling
1: hand. Justin Chang is the film critic for the L.A. Times. He reviewed the new film, Blackberry. On Monday's show, we speak with actor Joel Edgerton. He stars in Paul Schrader's new movie, Master Gardener, as a horticulturalist with a secret past as a white nationalist. Edgerton launched his film career with a bit part in the Star Wars prequel, Attack of the Clones. His brother is a stunt man who did stunts for Ewan McGregor's Obi Wan Kenobi and for Edgerton Two. Obi can join us. To keep up with what's on the show and get highlights of our interviews, follow us on Instagram at NPR Fresh Air. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our senior producer today is Roberta Shorock. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham, with additional engineering support from Joyce Lieberman, Julian Hertzfeld, and Tina Callaquet. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. For Terry Gross and our co-host Tanya Mosley, I'm Dave Davies.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast, Choiceology.